After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, <laughs> Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Awesome. Thanks, Missy. Appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. God's word is good. Good, good, good. You can have a seat. Go ahead. Have a seat. Uh, you guys are like, that's a Christmas passage. It's way past Christmas. What are we doing? What are we doing? It's not a Christmas passage. We, we associate it with Christmas because of the birth of Jesus, but this sets up so many important things in the, in the Bible, and so we're going we're gonna to dig into this today. So we're actually today kicking off a really long series in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, about two years ago, just before COVID started, we were like, hey, let's spend a lot of time in the, book of, in the book of Matthew and explore what this gospel means, what it looks like to be disciples of Jesus, what is, it, what is the kingdom of God, and look at some of these themes in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, and then the world kind of got turned upside down, uh, and so and it just didn't feel like the right thing to be talking about as we were like meeting online, and not that it wasn't important, but it just felt like we needed to make a shift, and so we're diving back in, and we're going to be on, it may take us the whole year, we're going to take some detours along the way and kind of explore some of the themes in a deeper way that, that Jesus brings up, but we're going to let Matthew be our road, our, our kind of roadmap for the year and help guide us on this journey, and so uh, this is going to kick us off because we've already dealt with some of the things in the first chapter of Matthew, and here we are in the second chapter of Matthew. By the way, I haven't, I haven't preached in like a month. Some of you guys were like, Chael, do you even work here anymore? Is this a thing? Like, do you, do you even teach? Yes, I do, uh, and so uh, so it's it's nice to nice to be back in it today. So uh, so first, before we dive into this passage, let me set up the Gospel of Matthew a little bit. Okay, so the Gospel of Matthew is the very first book in the New Testament. It kind of comes after a long period of silence. Uh, so there's a gap between the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the, the New Testament. And Matthew, in our Bibles, in, in the Christian Bible, is the one that begins the, the New Testament and begins to unfold the story about who Jesus is. And in the Gospel of Matthew, as we already kind of explored a little bit during our Christmas series, uh, Matthew is very, very concerned. Matthew is one of the disciples of Jesus. And he wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised all the way back in the Old Testament. 
And actually, we did a couple-week series called The Promise, and we focused on just the very first line of the Gospel of Matthew, where it talks about Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and gives this long genealogy. And the Gospel of Matthew is going to over and over again keep referencing, and this happened so that this was fulfilled. And this happened fulfilling what the prophet said in the old, in the old, in, in the, in the old scriptures. And so this is a way that the, the writer of Matthew is trying to say, hey, this guy Jesus that this, this book is about, this, this kind of uh, letter is about, it's all about how Jesus fulfills what God had promised back in the Old Testament and through his people. And one of the ways that he's doing that is he wants us, the writer, the, the, Matthew wants us to see, is that Jesus is like a new Moses. Jesus is like a new Moses. Do you remember Moses from the Old Testament, right? He is the people, he, he sets God's people free from Egypt. He was the one who um, God's people were uh, in, in, in Egypt in this foreign land, and one day they were going to return back to their homeland, and he is under the rule of, a, of this evil king, Pharaoh, who's oppressing the people, uh, and so and actually goes through and, and, and begins to murder children, just like we're going to talk about today here in, in this story uh, to try to kill because there were too many Israelites, too many Jewish people, and they were becoming too strong. And so the Pharaoh just tries to destroy them. They cry out. God rescues them. Moses is the one who leads them out of Egypt and, and right up into the edge of the promised land. Moses is the one who goes up on the mountain and prays to God, and God reveals the law and says, this is how I want my people to live. And so he has this incredible meeting uh, with, with, with God on Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. And he comes down and says, this is how my people are to live. And so in the gospel of Matthew, the writer wants us to think about Jesus like a new Moses. So already you can see some of the parallels, right? In this story that we're about to dig into, there is a person who's a young boy who's born under an oppressive kind of king. And right after the story we just read, Jesus is sent into Egypt. Sounds a lot like Moses. He ends up coming out of Egypt, he gets baptized, and then the very first thing that Jesus begins to do is he goes up to a mountain, and he begins to talk about how about the law of the Lord, but he puts kind of a new spin, he puts, puts kind of a new way of thinking about the law. So just like Moses brought down the law from the mountain, Jesus is bringing the people to the foot of the mountain, and we have the most famous sermon the world has ever known, the Sermon on the Mount where it talks about blessed are those and blessed are those, and then Jesus kind of outlines. And so the whole gospel of Matthew is saying, like, Jesus is, like, the better Moses, the one that was promised to come. And so the whole gospel of Matthew is going to un unfold that. And here in our chapter is kind of where this story really starts to, to unfold. So this is, like, one of those, those stories in our Bible that we're so familiar with that, and, we, and we associate it so much with like Christmas music and those kinds of things that we miss the dynamics of what's happening here. And this is a, a very intense story. And the heart of this story is, which king will you choose? Which king will you choose? The heart of this story poses a question to us about whether or not we will choose King Jesus and seek after him, or whether or not we will choose our own kingdom. I'm going to show you how that works in just a second. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a heavy story. Any story that ends with a king killing people is kind of a heavy story, right? This is a disturbing story. Actually, the writer in the Gospel of, 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 the Gospel of Matthew wants you to think about this way. 
This is not like a cute, nice little thing. This is like a heavy, kind of disturbing thing. He's wanting us to realize, man, there is a lot at stake on this person, Jesus. And so here's the story. You have these three, the three kings, right? Or the magi, these people that come from the east. And actually, the Bible doesn't say there are three. We assume there are three because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But this is actually just something that we imagine in our minds. Who automatically thinks of three kings? Like, right, your brain just goes there. Actually, this would have been a whole entourage of people coming from about a 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. These were people who were kind of of a, a, like a priestly caste in, in, among their people. So they were people, this word in the Bible refers to people who were reading the stars and trying to guess what was gonna happen in today based off of what they were seeing in the skies. They were astrologers, essentially. They were also probably dabbled in magic. So they were, they were people who believed in the spirits, and, and they were people who, um, at one point in time, if you remember the story of, the, of Daniel the prophet, Daniel the prophet, hundreds of years before, actually met people of this priestly class, this magi group of people. And Daniel was the one who was able to interpret the dreams because he was hearing God's voice better than everybody else. Anybody remember this story? Ringing some bells, right? So that's who these people are only hundreds of years later. And actually, many scholars believe that back when Daniel was there, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, that they learned these promises of a Messiah, that one day this Messiah would be born, and they began to add to kind of their studies of religion this, this Jewish faith and that this Messiah would one day be born. And so they're sitting here and they're watching the stars and something happens as they're waiting for a sign that this Messiah would be born that triggers them to go, ah, it's time, it's coming. They're over a thousand miles away, probably where they came from, and it, there probably wasn't just three. They would have been people who would have been well, very wealthy, and they would have had like a whole entourage with them. They would have traveled by camel. They would have been dressed probably very nice and had lots of people attending to their needs. Um, and even though it it's like, sounds like, oh, this might be a luxurious journey, it's not. Like traveling anywhere not by car for more than a couple miles kind of sucks. I mean, I mean, have you ever walked on the beach for longer than five minutes? It's no fun unless you're jumping right into the ocean. But that's what's happening here. They're traveling long distances across the sand. And when they arrive into Jerusalem, this would have been like, what is happening right now? These people would have had maybe different color skin. They would have had different beards and different hair, different dress. They would have maybe even had other kind of animals, exotic animals that no one's ever seen. They're coming to see the king, and so they would have been coming in with kind of who they think is the king, so they'd be coming in with riches and, and kind of like royal garb. And when they came to the gates of Jerusalem, the whole city would have been shaken. This wasn't like a quiet kind of thing that just happened somewhere, and like the whole city would have been going, what is happening? Why are these guys here? And they come and they enter into Jerusalem and they expect that the, if there is a king to be born, then he probably should be in the palace. And so the natural thing is to go to the palace. So they go to the palace of this guy named King Herod. And Herod is in charge. And so they go and they're like, the king must be here. So they're going, the star has led us here. They follow the star to Jerusalem and they come to this place where they're now gonna find out, okay, what's going on? This guy, King Herod, it says in the text that he was very disturbed along with the whole city whenever they encountered this. 
And Herod was not a good guy. Actually, Herod is universally known as one of the worst rulers ever. He was a puppet king because remember that the Roman Empire had conquered this area and they're the ones in charge. But when the Romans would come and conquer people, what they would do is they would put somebody as a king and they would be allowed to be king as long as they did whatever the Romans wanted. So they were like, Herod, you can do whatever you want as long as you do what we tell you. Like here are the boundaries. And so Herod would have been kind of making sure that everybody followed his way of living, uh, that, that everything, um, everything was working the way he's wanted. The Romans were like, cool with that, as long as it didn't interfere with what, what they were doing. Well, Herod had a little bit of a complex and constantly thought that people were trying to take his power. And so Herod killed his wife and at least three of his own sons. Can you imagine that? Because he was afraid that they were going to try and take his power away. This is not a good guy. So when we read a little bit later about what Herod did in Bethlehem, it's not a surprise. Like this fits the personality of, that, of this person. If he's willing to kill his own family members because he thinks that they might be a threat, there's no big deal to kill some kids down in Bethlehem that he doesn't even know. That's like messed up, right? So when these guys arrive and all of their pomp and circumstance and all of their riches and they show up, of course he's disturbed because he's thinking, oh my gosh, this is a threat to my power. What's going what's gonna to happen to me? And then the, then the rest of the city, when it refers to the, le- the rest of the city, it's referring to the ruling people, the officials, who would have been like, hey, we've got kind of a good thing going right now with Rome. We stay out of their business and they stay out of ours. We're not interested in whatever this is that you have with this new king. We don't know anything about it and we don't necessarily want it. So here's what happens. They go and they inquire and say, hey, tell us about where this king is. And the next thing that happened is all the chief priests, all the people who knew their Bible really well, and all the people who thought that they knew God really well, all get together and they're like, well, what does the Bible say about where the, where the king is supposed to be born? And it's, it's actually interesting the way it's like posed in the, in the Bible is that they knew the answer really quick. They didn't really have to debate about it. There wasn't like any argument. There weren't like religious scholars going, well, it says here and it says here. No, it's like right away, um, he's supposed to come in Bethlehem. They all know right away. That's interesting. So then the very next thing that happens is after this quote, they all like, well, he's supposed to be in Bethlehem in this land of Judea. That's where he's supposed to come. So then what Herod does is he calls the Magi to himself. says, hey, guys. Let's get away from this room. Let's have a secret meeting. So he calls them away from and begins to have this secret meeting with these magi. And what you would think would happen if this person and the chief priests really were interested in this king and really knew their scriptures is they would have said, you guys lead the way. Show us where the star is and we'll follow you to Bethlehem. Let's go and do it right now. But that's not what happens. What Herod says is, hey, you guys go. And then when you go, after you found him, come back to us and let us know. It should trigger our mind right away. Something is not right in this story. Why aren't the chief priests and the rulers? And why isn't the king, if they really love God and they really know their scriptures, why aren't they going to see the promised Messiah? And why are these foreigners, these people, 
who actually, the people of that day, they would have looked down on these people. They would have seen them as Gentile dogs, not worthy of being in their presence. Actually, their very presence in the presence of the people would have defiled them, and there would have been had to be whole sorts of rituals. They would have been like, those people definitely don't know God. But these people who aren't supposed to know God, these people who are looking up at the stars and doing all kinds of things they're not supposed to do, they're the ones actually seeking after the king to be born. And all the people who should know better are not going to do that in the story. That should right away trigger us to be thinking about, what is going on here? A lot of times, this is the way the Bible works. It presents us with two characters or two groups of people. And it invites us to pay attention to those two groups of people or those two characters and it invites us to say, which one are you? Which one do you identify most readily with? Are you more like the people who are going at great lengths to seek out and find this king, even though you really shouldn't be doing that because you're a foreigner, you're exiled from the family of God? Or are you like the king and the other chief priests and the rulers who are kind of like a little freaked out by this? Which one are you like? And actually what we learn in the story is, it's not just that they're freaked out by, by this king, it's actually that they're protecting what they have. And King Herod, what we, what we see in this story, he is seeking his own kingdom and protecting his kingdom, more than he is concerned about the kingdom of God that had been promised long ago. And so the invitation and the challenge to us is, which kingdom do you want? Do you want your own kingdom? Are you pursuing the kingdom that you want or are you pursuing the king and the kingdom that is promised to you? Because they're very different kinds of things. And that's an important challenge for us to think about. Oftentimes the scripture puts things to us in these kind of black and white terms. Which king and which kingdom are you pursuing? Is it this one or is it that one? And it's, it's a complicated thing because most of the time in life, it doesn't feel like life is quite so easy and that's so black and white, right? Most of the time, life feels a little bit more gray. Like I'm not choosing between loving God or hating God most of the time. Like it doesn't feel quite like that. Most of the time, I feel like we feel this sense of mixed emotions about our choices that we make. Are we pursuing God or are we not? Mixed emotions about the, the things that we do and why we do them. So even, even now, my, I truly and genuinely hope that while I'm up here talking to you, that you meet and encounter God and aren't thinking about me. At the same time, I'll go home tonight and no matter what I do, I will wonder, did I do a good job? I have mixed emotions, mixed motives. Anyone else in the room, right? Like, everything we do feels not so quite black and white. It feels a bit of gray. And so sometimes when we're faced like this, it's like, it feels a bit shocking because life seems like it's full of so many different kinds of choices, not these black and white kinds of choices like this. As a matter of fact, this was like really highlighted for me uh, when our friends uh, Mark and his son Daniel were with us last week. They're British and they live in Peru uh, as missionaries. Uh, we would go to a restaurant and they would look at the menu and they would be absolutely overwhelmed with the choices. Like how, I mean, I don't know what to choose. 
there's not just chicken or steak. There's five kinds of chickens and four kinds of steak. Like, do you guys, should I move a different microphone? What do you think? Yeah? Okay, cool. Um, I could just shout because I'm loud. I'm, I'm loud and obnoxious, so you can even turn me down more if you need to. Uh, they were absolutely overwhelmed. And then we did this thing. We went to Albany's Candy Factory. Anyone ever been there? If you've been with me on a trip to Indiana, you have been here. There, it is a, it is a massive candy store with hundreds, if not thousands of kinds of candy. It is absolutely overwhelming. It's not just, do you want gummy bears? It's what color gummy bears do you want? You can curate your own, your own kind of color of just the kind of color of gummy bears that you want. Do you want chocolate with peanut butter, chocolate with peanut butter with salt? Do you want dark chocolate or dark chocolate with peanut butter and salt? What do you want? It's absolutely overwhelmed with choices. And really, it feels like to me, like life and the life that we live, is really feels like overwhelmed with choices. Woodman's is an anxiety attack waiting to happen, <laughs> right? Like the whole store, like the, the cheese aisle alone, like is just like, I don't even know what that is. But now I feel nervous about I'm not going to come home with the right cheese. Anyone? Right? So even though life feels that complicated, sometimes we have to distill it down to basic things. And sometimes, the, just like this scripture kind of confronts us with which kingdom are we, are we choosing? Are we choosing to seek after God like these people or are we choosing to protect our own kingdom? Feels like, a, feels like something that we need to actually consider. And we need to actually consider in those kinds of black and white terms, just for a reality check, just for a, just for a sense of going, yeah, if, I, if I'm being honest, I think I kind of rather, pref- I, like, I think more often than not, I'm choosing the kingdom of me being in charge. Let me, let me explain a little bit of what that looks like. The kingdom of me being in charge in my own kingdom looks like things going how I want them to go. Me being in control. Me telling God how I think he should do things. Me being frustrated with God when things don't go the way I think that he should be doing them. It looks like selfishness. It looks like not having time for people. It looks like being in too big of a hurry to see someone who needs to be seen. It looks like being constantly concerned with yourself and how you're being perceived by the people around you. Right? These are very subtle things that are somehow me seeking a kingdom that's primarily about me rather than seeking a kingdom that's primarily about about Jesus. And in this story, because it wants us to see these things in like these stark terms, that ends in disastrous consequences because Herod is so committed to keeping his control, to keeping his power, that he is willing to murder people to hold on to it. And that feels a bit harsh because I don't feel like a murderer, right? (laughs) Thankfully, right? And most of us don't. We're like, yeah, we're not that bad. Maybe, maybe you're like, on a bad day, if somebody cuts me off, I might think about it, right? So, so it's, it feels a little bit like unfair to associate selfishness with murder. 
It feels a bit unfair to associate lust with adultery. But how you end up in adultery, it starts with lust. How you end up in a power grab, like Herod does, killing people, it starts with selfishness over here. It doesn't necessarily mean that you will end up over there, but this is why Jesus says, look, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. If you harbor anger in your heart, it's as if you have murdered someone. This is what Jesus is gonna say later. He's not saying there's an exact correlation. He's saying, but this is where the seed starts and this is where it grows. And it starts with pursuing your own kingdom, being in charge, trying to make sure that life is working the way that you want it and keeping things kind of neat and tidy in the way that you want it, rather than doing what these magi did. And what these magi did is search for something that they didn't even really know. What these magi did was cross great distances to find a God somewhere maybe. They inconvenienced themselves in incredible ways. They put themselves at great risk. Can you imagine showing up to a foreign land saying, hey, I heard there's a new king in town. If you did that in Rome, you would be murdered by Caesar immediately. And they're putting themselves at great risk. They're literally bringing gifts across. Do you know that when you travel like that in this day and you have all that wealth and riches, you're gonna need a lot of people to guard you. There were robbers and bandits. Anyone remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Here's a guy that has nothing. He's beat up and left for dead and robbed just because he's out by himself. Now think about there's like thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of gold and frankincense and myrrh, these incredible like gifts They're traveling across desert, putting themselves at great risk and maybe gonna lose all of the wealth to maybe possibly might find this king that was promised. And then when they meet him, what happens? When the story, when they first meet Jesus, when they go, which by the way, probably happened uh, at minimum 40 days up to two years after Jesus was born, we, they, they probably didn't show up right away. If you kind of do the math in the Bible, like it's somewhere was probably 40 days to two years time before they actually showed up and met Jesus. And so, uh, so they're showing up here. And when they meet Jesus, they're absolutely moved. It says that they were filled with joy. It says that they bowed down and worshiped him. If there was ever any question about whether or not Jesus is God, Right there in the second page of the Gospel of Matthew is proof. Because in the Jewish culture, you don't bow down and worship anyone but Yahweh. And here, right in the first pages, you have people bowing down and worshiping this baby. That is amazing, guys. And then what do they do? They open up their treasures before him. And then they begin to worship him. It is this beautiful scene of what happens when people who pursue a God meet a God. And that is the kind of posture that we're invited into. To be people who will seek after God's heart. To be people who are saying, I don't know where I'm gonna find him, but I have an inkling he's there. And so I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to go and find him. And when I do find him, I'm gonna bow down. When people meet Jesus and realize who he is all throughout the Gospels, they are undone. 
You have a guy who's literally this tax collector named Levi who's been extorting people. That's probably the writer of this book, very likely. Extorting people and taking riches. They have one, one meeting with Jesus. He's like, I got to give it all back. Zacchaeus is the same way. Remember him? These people, they meet Jesus and everything changes, right? And here, this is what happens with these kings. And so it invites us to step in and say, will you pursue knowing this king? And when you meet him, how will you respond? That's the challenge and the invitation for us. Or will we, for whatever reason, try to protect what we have and pursue a kingdom of ourselves? Now look, I, this isn't like terribly practical. But I think the non-practicality is actually important. Because here's what I know, I've said this before, when you really want something, no one has to tell you how to go and get it. When you really want something, no one has to tell you. You will figure it out. If you really want to know God, you will figure out how to pursue him. When the moment I knew that I was in love with Jen, I didn't need to go, um, I don't know, I guess I'm just gonna wait for Jen to wait and tell me that she loves me. It's like, no, I'm gonna pursue her. And yeah, there are things I can learn along the way that helped me to know how to love her and, love, and know how to, how to pursue her even more. But at, but at its most basic, because I knew it was something that was gonna be really valuable, I was willing to just pursue it just because. And if you think there's value in knowing God and seeking after God's heart, you will figure out how to pursue him. You will figure out how to look for him. You will, you will buy books that no one told you to buy, or you will find someone who you feel like is further on this journey and say, help me figure this out, because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just telling you, when you're motivated, you will figure it out. Here's one of the most amazing things about this story. Before the wise men, before these magi ever started seeking God, God was seeking them. Isn't it so kind of a God to put some sort of sign in the sky to guide these people to meet him, in a, meet him as a baby and lay down their gifts? That is amazing to me. That is amazing to me. And, and by the way, th th there were all kinds of signs in the scriptures too that, that God, had, God had given plainly for his people to go and find him too. But this is the kind of God that is asking us to seek him out. He is a God who is seeking us out. He is a God who has made himself plain in all creation, Romans says, so, so that we are without excuse. Everywhere we look, the heavens declare the glory of God. It, it, like, I can be with people who know God and I can experience God just by being, being in their presence. Like, God is everywhere if you are willing to look. Like, I just, I just love that. 
that it's not something that these folks had to go and find God because uh, he was out there and it was some sort of mystery and they were never going to find him. God was making himself. He was saying, yeah, if you come and seek me. And over and over again, God tells his people that if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all of your heart. That is a promise from God to his people, right? He is pursuing us. Remember that story I mentioned earlier of the prodigal son who goes out on the road and meets his son before he ever comes home. That is what God is to you and is is doing right now. Before you ever said yes to him, God said yes to you. I just love that. Like We have this idea that it's up to us to work hard to know God, but the reality is like he's already put forth a ton of effort for you to know him. Like, His blood was shed on the cross. He's given you this incredible book full of all kinds of wisdom that that can guide you and instruct you. God has already done so much for for you to know him. He's just asking you to take that first step back home like that prodigal son to come home. He's just asking you and I to be like these wise men and to be people who search for God. And if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to search for God, here's, here's what I think. You can find him in the little mundane things of life and the everyday, ordinary kinds of stuff. You can find him interacting with your kids. You can find him interacting with your spouse. You can find him when you put on your radio and you listen to music. You, you can find him when you're cooking. You can, you, you can find him when you're mowing your lawn. Some of my best prayer times and encounters with God have been with my earbuds on, just scrolling behind my lawnmower. Like, You can find God anywhere. Like, he's not contained to a place. If he will reveal himself to these pagan, like, sorcerers, which is essentially what they were, he will reveal his heart to you. That is awesome. But you gotta look. You gotta seek. You can also find God in, 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 like, more strategic, kind of more formal settings, like right here. God's presence is here in this place. When we worship together, you can feel God's presence in a way you can't feel when you're at home by yourself. It's just not the same. That's not to say God's presence isn't with you. It's just saying God's revealing something different of himself when we're here together. God is revealing something different when you're around the dinner table with friends and you're sharing stories of God's goodness and you're eating a meal together. God's presence is uniquely there. It's different than when you're on your own doing your own personal devotions, right? You can find God in places where we gather together. You can find God in your prayer closet at home if you're willing to do it. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if not, you can come and take it out on me. If you make time to meet with God every day, he will meet with you. I know he will. It might not be with thunder and lightning and clouds and rain. There might not be a great revelation from on high, but maybe there will be. Who knows? I don't know. But maybe in that quiet of saying, God, I'm just here to meet with you today. I just want to seek your heart, whatever it is. Maybe you'll experience peace and comfort like you don't normally experience if you didn't have that time. Maybe God will speak subtly to you, say, hey, I love you. I'm with you today. I'm for you today. I don't know what it might be, but if you choose to actively pursue, say, God, I want to know you. I want to meet you. You'll you'll find him in those formal ways and in those informal ways. God has been teaching me through a mentor and through my own life that actually there are times where I need to go on pilgrimages where I actually need to seek God above and beyond just kind of the normal. I need to go to a place and meet God in that place. So that's why every time there's something like a, like a kid's camp or something like that, I'm like, kids, you're going. 
you're going because I know you will meet God in a way there that you're not going to meet him in other spheres of life. That's why we go, like, instead of sometimes we do, instead of this family vacation, we're going to like, hey, let's go to the prayer room. Who does that? It's weird. I don't know. We're, we literally go to a 24-hour prayer room just for fun. But here's what I've learned. that If I do that, God will meet me there. And God will meet your kids. One of the most precious gifts that I have is sitting in a front row at IHOP. It's just incredible watching my kids, watch these young adults um, worshiping their heart out before the Lord on stage. These 20-something-year-olds just worshiping their heart out and our kids watching that going, you can be in your early 20s and have an on-fire relationship with Jesus. I want that too. I'm telling you, it is worth it to pursue God and to do so in uncomfortable ways. It is worth it to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles like these wise men to find God wherever he can be found. And yes, you can do that in the quiet and you can do that on your own and in your private, but you can also do it with other people and you can go on big journeys and you don't have to choose between the two because he's a God of on your own and in your prayer closet, but he's also the God of the temple and on the pilgrimage where God meets his people. The only choice is to choose that over choosing to protect what you have. And God's promise to you is that he will meet you. Rob, you can come up. I'm going to close here. I feel, I feel a little bit, well, you guys are like, you always are like this. I feel a little bit extra fiery today because I feel like God is putting on the table before us a, a decision. Will we choose to pursue him or will we not? I know there are nuances. Look, I am, if you know my heart, if you're new to our church and you don't know me well, I, I deeply, deeply understand the things that sometimes keep us from pursuing God. I understand the hurt and the pain. I understand the questions that we have. I, I understand all of it. I've been through all of it too. I'm still on a journey. But here's what I know. Psalm 63 says his love is better than life. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you with my whole, and my whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there's no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be, I love this promise, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips, my mouth will declare your praise. On my bed, I remember you. I love that picture of being on your bed and just remembering this is a place where I can seek after God in those, in those hours just before I go to sleep or in my waking hours. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you in the watches of the night. When you wake up in the middle of the night, maybe it's God getting your attention. Maybe it's like him putting that thing in the sky for the wise men to follow. Say, hey, I'm here for you. If you're willing to wake up and just talk to me right now. I really do think there is this black and white kind of choice that we have to make. Like, will we pursue God or will we not? It doesn't matter how you pursue him. It just matters that you do pursue him. I don't care. Do, do whatever spiritual disciplines you feel like you need to do to know God better, to seek after his heart. Put whatever structure that you need in place to make, make sure that you're pursuing knowing God, but just do it. Just 
do it. I want you to take a second. And if you could, just close your eyes and just kind of pray. Just begin to have a conversation with the Lord about where this is hitting you right now. All throughout the Psalms, this, this two, there's, a, there's a motif. It's called the two ways motif. It's this, this if you read, go, back, go and read Psalm 1, there's one way to live or there's this way to live. And the path uh, of choosing, seeking God's heart is one that leads to life and the other path is one that leads to death. So Lord, right now I pray, Lord, that you would begin to reveal to my friends here in the room, which path are they on? How are you working in their life, God? How are you pursuing them, Lord? I pray right now for the good news, God, that you are pursuing people to just come to the forefront of them and cut through all the clutter, all the junk, all the I can'ts, and I'm not sure, right to the forefront of the mind to see the man Jesus who loves them and pursues them. I pray right now, Lord, that you just press to the forefront of their mind, that they feel alive in Christ Jesus right now. I can't wait to get to know this God. He is the fire that's shut up in my bones. Lord, and would you be so kind as to show us our selfish pursuits? Lord, where we're building the kingdom of ourselves, Lord, where we're trying to protect, Lord, and we're more concerned about protecting what we have then surrendering it to you, Lord. I pray, Lord, you just reveal it to us, Lord. We don't wanna live in that bondage. God, we don't want to live in that place, Lord, where, uh, where, where we're slowly but surely dying even though it feels like we're living, God. Teach us how to not live like the world but live in your upside-down kingdom that says seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things that will be added unto you. God, teach us, Lord. Teach us how to do that. Teach us how to trust you and take you at your word, Lord. Make us people of great faith, God that would trust you, Lord, and take you at your word, that, that your love is better than life, Lord, that we will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, Lord. I pray for deep satisfaction for those who pursue you, God. Let there be a growing hunger, God, that only you can satisfy. <laughs> Help us to understand the, the paradox of never hungry, but always hungry, never thirsty, but always thirsty, Lord. Help us, God. Lord, and help us to entrust you with our lives, Lord. One of the reasons why this is here in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew is because the whole book of Matthew is gonna unfold and represent these choices to us over and over again. Which kingdom will you choose? Will you surrender to King Jesus whose way is different than the way of the world or will you continue to pursue your own kingdom? And what you're gonna see over and over again in the book of Matthew is that the most surprising people say yes to King Jesus. I wanna be one of those people and I hope you will too. Here's what I would encourage you to do. If you feel like, like 
I, I feel like I just need to renew that sense of con- consecration to seek after the Lord. Uh, we just want to make some space for you to come and pray here. No one will bother you if you, if you, if you just want to pray on your own. If you'd like prayer, we'll have some people who will be up here who would love to pray with you. God is doing some significant things when we pray up here. So I just want to encourage you to make space for that before you go. Secondly, if you are a guy in this room who are saying, I want to know how to pursue God, and I want to go after him, no holds barred. One of our elders came to me before church today and said, I'll take a few guys under my wing and to begin to disciple them and how to hunger and thirst after God, but, it, but we're not going to play games. We're going to go after God. So if that's you, come and talk to me, and I'll introduce you to, to someone. So if you're a lady and you say, yeah, that's for me too, then come and talk to me, and God's got something for you too. But but make a choice to pursue, pursue God. I hope you hear the grace and love in my voice. I am zealous that you would know God and pursue him with his whole heart. There's no harshness in anything that I've said. The only reason why I'm so passionate about this is because God loves you and because he can't wait to get to know you and he wants to set you ablaze with things in your life and wants to set your mind free and your heart free from the things that are keeping it captive. And I want you to step into freedom and I will fight for your freedom every single day. So I love you guys. If you want prayer, come up and pray. Otherwise, have a blessed week. Talk to you guys soon.